Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Here is my joke. It's hilarious. What do you call a cow with no legs? What? Ground beef. No. Ah, so good. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a bad joke from Allison Pill, one of the stars of the TV drama The Newsroom. That'll help break the ice. And we've kicked off the show with a joke about food, because this is a special all-food episode. Yes, it's our favorite segments about food, presented on the audio equivalent of our best china. We're going to learn about Turkish delight and about Ireland's answer to the crepe. Mm. Plus, we'll hear stories about eating from the likes of Dick Cavett and Top Chef's Gail Simmons. And later, the band The War on Drugs stops by to suggest tunes to spin while you're eating. We got it all covered. But first, cast your mind back to June when we started with this food-centric small talk. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is a senior writer at The Atlantic Wire. That is The Atlantic's online news blog. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a very exciting new robot that is (laughs) capable of deboning chickens. What? And it's being hailed as, quote... This is according to the Wall Street Journal, a holy grail project and revolutionary. Pretty big deal. That's So they're going to be robots with knives that can debone things. Yes. That's pretty frightening deal. Right. Well, it's exactly. They start with dead chickens, but, you know, who, who knows? knows? What, why is this uh, such a big deal? They've wanted to do this for a long time because I guess people doing it on a kind of production line is, is sort of inefficient and really it would like speed everything up and, you know, the world of chicken as we know it would change. And the guy working on this apparently has started his career at NASA and has worked for the military making robots that can detect terrorist bombs. But his real passion project is this chicken deboner. <laughs> Yeah, and to take jobs away from people who debone chicken. That's well, right. yeah, that yeah. is that is a concern, obviously. Yeah, but you know, there's a pictures of this guy with this big kind of crazy robot arm, and everyone seems very excited. So, <laughs> who are we to really judge? It's just a big arm. It doesn't it doesn't look like the Terminator. Yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't look remotely human, and it they're practicing it right now on rubber chickens. I guess because they don't want to harm the <laughs> dead chickens. Right. So Real the comedy chickens. industry must be upset because the rubber chickens <laughs> are exactly. scarce. It's bad for a lot of people, actually, now that we think about it. Yeah. And all this so we can have boneless chicken for our McNuggets. Yeah, and, and I, I guess the concern from the food service industry is that the robots won't be able to check to see if they got all the bones. So they might have to have a human oversee the robot, which seems to defeat the purpose. Because <laughs> wow. if a bone shows up in a chicken nugget, I'll be like, wait, is this a chicken nugget? It has something <laughs> right. resembling yeah. an actual chicken in it. But are you going to be bold enough to tell the chicken deboning robot that it was wrong? What? No then he way. might debone you. <laughs> we'll just be floppy humans. Right. Richard Lawson, thanks so much for the uh, fairly disturbing news. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and now we need some cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our stirred, olive-garnished history lesson with booze. First, the history. Back in 1955, a new invention changed cooking forever. As always, Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Near the end of World War II, the Raytheon Company designed high-tech military gear and cooking devices. The latter was kind of an accident. See, in 1945, a Raytheon engineer named Percy Spencer was trying to improve radar using what's called a magnetron. One night, while working with the thing, he reached in his pocket for a candy bar and discovered it had melted. 
Intrigued, he scattered popcorn seeds in front of the magnetron. A minute later, they popped. Percy had discovered microwaves from the magnetron cooked food crazy fast. Later that year, Raytheon patented the first industrial microwave oven. They called it the Radar Range. But early ranges didn't sell, maybe because they were the size of a refrigerator and cost as much as the average American's annual salary. It wasn't till October 55 that rival company Tappan sold the first home model. And another 20 years before every home had to have a microwave. I've made the greatest cooking discovery since fire. The radar range microwave oven operates on ordinary household current. But while today's microwaves are smaller and more convenient, they're also puny compared to Raytheon's original military-grade prototype. Pumping out 3,000 watts of power, it could cook a steak well done in 50 seconds. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Bob McCoy. He is the bar manager at the Island Creek Oyster Bar in Boston, home of the microwave range. (laughs) Home on the microwave range. Bob, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? I actually came up with a cocktail I titled Spencer's Sour in reference to Percy Spencer, who uh, first discovered that microwaves can actually cook food. The guy who carries candy bars around in his pocket. Absolutely, yeah. All right, tell me... (laughs) Tell me more about the drink. Well, you know, we had a little fun with the candy bar thing. So for the base, I actually used an ounce and a half of chocolate-infused cognac. Clever. Uh, Do they really make chocolate-infused cognac? Uh, They didn't, but we actually whipped up some ourselves. Really? How did you do that? A very new technique uh, that Dave Arnold, director of culinary technology at the French Culinary Institute. Okay. And he recently discovered what I guess you could call uh, the microwave for bartenders. Uh, Really? Yeah. What is the name of this gadget? He actually does it with nothing more than a whipped cream dispenser. Whoa. Yeah, so it's as simple as taking a whipped cream dispenser and mm-hmm. adding your spirit into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you add whatever your flavoring agent uh, you want to use in there as well. Just screw the top on, you add your nitrous oxide to it, mm-hmm. and then you release that pressure. Um, and then you can take the lid right off, you strain it out, and you've got an instantaneous infusion on your hands. <laughs> all right, so we have all these ingredients and components. Well, um, tell me how, the, how you would make this. Yeah, so you grab your mixing glass, uh, you would take our uh, instantaneous infusion, and then we add uh, some demerara syrup, which is basically a raw sugar syrup. Um, okay. And then you have fresh lemon juice. Uh-huh. And, of course, uh, an egg white. Of course. I figured this is another great way to be inspired by uh, the microwave by getting our proteins at a quicker speed. Who needs to roast beef? You can just put an egg in your sour. I like exactly, that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then you would actually take a Boston shaker and you would dry shake that first. In other words, you would shake it without any ice. This helps to froth and emulsify the egg. Okay. And then you would add your ice and then you would shake it again. Strain that out into whatever cocktail glass if you're choosing, a nice chilled glass. And then we're going to grate a little fresh chocolate right over the top. Wow. And this is called Spencer's... It's called Spencer's Sour. And unlike a microwave, you can stand in front of it without hurting yourself. Usually. And Rico, of course, we have the microwave to thank for the best part of Thanksgiving dinner. Yes, the leftovers. Reheated leftovers. Best. I mean, it's like dinner is just a boring precursor to... The main event. Raiding the fridge, exactly. So true. Why, Why does holiday food taste better... Like days after Thanksgiving. It doesn't make sense. I think it has something to do with the fact that you're finally alone and you can put mayo on everything. (laughs) There you go. Problem solved. That's what I look for. Folks, uh, if you're enjoying a quiet moment with a turkey sandwich, 
you can find a cocktail to go with it on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. You'll find all our drink recipes there. And now it's time to introduce some actual food to this all-food episode. As opposed to food technology, that's right. Exactly. Back in March, Rico discovered some Irish food that is not made of some combination of water, malt, and barley. It was a miracle. Uh, It was last St. Patrick's Day. I headed down to a pub in Santa Monica, California called Finn McCool's. Their specialty is an apparently very popular dish in Ireland called boxty. Chef Geraldine Galillan's got a a whole menu featuring different varieties of boxties. So I asked her why I had never heard of these things. Actually, I left Ireland when I was in my 20s, and it wasn't really that popular when I was growing up. I actually discovered it in America. Um, It is the quintessential potato pancake. But if it's not so popular in in Ireland, how did it become quintessential? Well, you see, when I left Ireland, the culinary arts were not, you know, they made jokes about us. And, you know, the whole thing changed with the food revolution that happened really in the early 80s. And so they discovered dishes like this. They rediscovered them, I should say. So now it is really popular. Whole restaurants are devoted in Ireland to box teas. It's a potato pancake. What distinguishes it from, say, a latke, which is the one that springs to my mind? Um, well, there are two kinds of boxies that we're looking at. One is the griddled boxy and one is the pan boxy. So the one on the left is the griddled boxy, and it's... It's a huge, soft potato pancake. It's like a crepe almost, very thin. It looks actually kind of like a tortilla, but maybe that's just because I've been living in Southern California too long. Yeah, it, but our boxty is using raw potato. In the olden days, they probably used leftover mashed potato, if, if there was any leftover potatoes, which there probably wasn't. So it's kind of like a tortilla, and it's folded over, and inside the fold are just a big pile of, I guess in this case, chicken? Chicken, basil, mushrooms, red peppers, green peppers, some Irish cheese, and like a little butter and a little cream. I am really surprised. It does kind of look like a cross between a Mexican dish and a French dish. It's not something that I would associate somehow with Ireland. Well, most people serve the boxy rolled up like a burrito. I just don't like that presentation. So I prefer to serve it like this, fold it over in half. (laughs) So it's kind of an Irish burrito made with a crepe-like potato thing. Of course. That is amazing, because it is. It really doesn't. I think more of pies when I think of Ireland. It is definitely new Irish cuisine, this presentation. The original box tea, they probably had nothing to put in it. They probably had bits and pieces of bacon, black pudding. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's blood. blood blood. Yeah, it's blood sausage. So this probably would have been just like, you know, the Mexican burrito, where they literally put the food in and rolled it up and had it in the fields when they were digging. All right, so I'm going to taste just the crepey part of it first. Mmm. It has kind of a gravy. What is this gravy made? Mm, chicken, you know, chicken and cream and a little onion and garlic. It actually does have, because of the cream and the onion, there's a bit of a French quality to it. So this is your twist on it. This, this is our twist. Yeah, this is a twist. I can't imagine that the old and Irish would have much to do with the French. No, and they wouldn't have anything like the ingredients we have here. It's excellent. At the risk of uh, ruining my appetite, let's move on to this other kind you've got, which seems to be surrounded by gravlocks. This looks more like a potato pancake of, you know, my Jewish-Italian youth. This is the back boxy in the pan, but we actually don't call it that because we don't want to confuse people. We call it um, a potato parsnip pancake. 
So in this one, we put parsnips in it because that was another root vegetable that was really popular. So this is potatoes and parsnips fried more like a latke. Exactly. Very crispy and small. And then it's topped with a horseradish uh, creme fraiche and then the gravlax. Again, I, I would assume that creme fraiche was not uh, what would have been used in the old no, days. You know, in the old days, people didn't have refrigerators. Like my own grandmother had a meat safe out in her backyard. So we would put the food out there and the cream would just curdle overnight. So we would have what you call sour cream. This honestly looks like something that could have been served at my bar mitzvah. It, actually, it's really similar. I think a lot of our histories with regards to food, uh, they kind of meld. This is really good. It is really good, isn't it? I have to say, though, when the St. Patrick's revelers are, arrive, I feel like this is maybe a little too highbrow for this that This is group. not on the menu for St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> You're not going to waste the grab locks on those peeps. And Brendan, just a note about Geraldine's place, Finn McCool's. Which was, sounds like a serial mascot from the 70s. That's true. It is a real name. And actually, the place is as authentic as it gets. It was actually Geraldine's stepfather's pub in Ireland. And when he passed away, she had it shipped to California piece by piece and rebuilt. It's amazing. Just so we Americans can slosh beer all over it. As God intended. <laughs> Folks, we are going to take a break. Coming up, Top Chef's Gail Simmons on food criticism and a memorable dinner party moment from satirist Fran Lebowitz. So I was then taken to another table, which turned out to be the children's table at the Nobel Prize Ball. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and you're listening to a special all-food episode of The Dinner Party. Later, New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik teaches us about the birth of the restaurant, but first some tales about private dining. Yes, we are lucky to have a parade of smart, sophisticated guests on the show. I don't know how we do that. No, me neither. And <laughs> we often ask them to tell us about the most memorable dinner they have ever attended. So here are a few of our favorite answers to that question. They come from Dick Cavett, satirist Fran Lebowitz, comedian Michael Ian Black, and we're starting with George Lois, the man who revolutionized advertising in the mid-20th century. Yeah, just listen for a second to my abbreviated list of unrepentant name-dropping of celebrities I've worked <laughs> and dined with. Frank Sinatra, Jackie Gleason, Bob Hope, Salvador Dali, Whitey Ford, Marianne Moore, Andy Warhol, Sonny Liston, Orson Welles, Betty Grable, Henry Fonda, Kim Novak, Joe Namath, Jane Russell, Gina Lola Brigida, Rudolf Nureyev, Robert F. Kennedy, and hundreds more. Who are those guys? Jesus, yeah. Could you please go by <laughs> one by one and describe who those people are? I mean, I'm not kidding. I got another 200 of those. But, but my most memorable get-together was a lunch in 1967 with Muhammad Ali. Mm. And at that time, Muhammad Ali is like an incredibly controversial figure for refusing to fight in Vietnam, right? Oh, yeah. You got it. You know, he was very controversial. Mm. So anyway, so he and I walked into the pool room at the Four Seasons restaurant, and when they see Ali, they went, whoa. Yeah. And after the tumult died down, in strode our two lunch guests, and they were the iconic Joe Lewis, wow. <laughs> and walking alongside him, Track star Jesse Owens. What? <laughs> From the Berlin Olympics. These yeah. are like two of the biggest sports heroes of World War II. You got it. The room exploded with an ovation unlike any I have ever witnessed. All standing and chanting, Ali, Ali. Wow. And this is in the middle of the four seasons, you know, this posh <laughs> restaurant, you know what I mean? Now, you got to understand, Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens actively displaying their support for Ali oh, yeah. brought 
tears the most of the people in that room. What did you guys have for lunch? Yeah. Really, what, I'm <laughs> what do you order at that point? Well, you know what? It was hard to swallow after that. Dick Cavett, what is the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? I'm looking forward to this. Oh, I was at the White House, uh, the Ford White House. As I recall, it was a dinner for the new German ambassador, perhaps. Everybody in tuxedos and dignitaries at the front table, and I was seated with gowned and tuxedoed denizens of Georgetown, and some of them rather ancient. And um, <laughs> they put a soup down, and I should have noticed that nobody else made the mistake I did of thinking it was Vichyssoise. Cold. I took a big mouthful and scalded my mouth and spat it all over the bowl <laughs> and the tablecloth and Mrs. Gottrock sitting next to me. <laughs> the fact is, a couple of people congratulated me afterwards saying, have the nerve to do that. And I didn't want to say, <laughs> take any nerve, it was reflex. Fran Leibowitz, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Details, please. Well, this is what I'm going to say. Okay. Right? When Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize, um, she took a bunch of her friends, including me, to Stockholm with her. Um, wow. And wow. at the Nobel Prize ball, there was a big seating plan outside and everything, leather-bound, very beautiful. Toni was sitting with the king at the king's table, and the rest of her friends uh, were all sitting together. Everyone was sitting together except me. I was at another table which was entirely occupied by Swedish aristocrats. Hmm. And they were so not happy to have me at this table, I can tell you. <laughs> they, you know, they didn't know me, but they could tell right at a glance I wasn't a Swedish aristocrat. Really? <laughs> there was a mistake. So I was then taken to another table, which turned out to be the children's table at the Nobel Prize ball. <laughs> <laughs> by which I mean the next oldest person to me at this table was 12. The Nobel Prize ball dinner is four and a half hours long. There was a little boy, and I mean little, like an eight-year-old boy sitting next to me. It's white tie, the Nobel Prize ball. And so this kid had this rented outfit on, you know, and he was he kept saying, I'm strangling, I'm strangling, I'm dying. I don't think he'd ever had a shirt with buttons on before. That was the most memorable evening of my life. You got the Nobel Prize for... For patience. Michael Ian Black, we asked this of many of our guests. Uh, what is the greatest get-together you have ever been to? Details, please. Well, when I was invited to Truman Capote's White Party, <laughs> wow. obviously that was the social event of the year. It was me, it was Truman, it was Mick, mm. uh, it was Halston, Babs was there, everybody was there. Anybody. <laughs> it was a night of debauchery, I dare mm. say. Some things happened at that party that I'm saving for my second volume of memoirs. <laughs> you know, Obviously, look, the party was chronicled in the pages of Vanity Fair. <laughs> Books have been written about the party, and all I can say is none of them have done justice to the actual experience seeing truman capote's naked backside <laughs> flopping into a swimming pool at three o'clock in the morning cigarillo in hand uh, yes. martini sloshing out of his glass as he bellowed uh, i am in cold blood is one of the <laughs> finest memories of my life not easily replaced Man, wow. and and you were there. That or the, uh, the my kid's party at Chuck E. Cheese. One of those two. <laughs> All right, Michael Ian Black, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. My pleasure. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. You wrote that down, I bet. I did. I'm reading it from a script. Yeah. 
That was in reverse order. Comedian Michael Ian Black, satirist Fran Leibowitz, Mr. Dick Cavett, and legendary ad man George Lewis telling us their favorite dinner party tales. And my most memorable dinner party would be all those folks together in one room, you know? Mm. Although it would be hard to get a word in edgewise. Yeah, I don't see Michael and Frank getting along either. Mm. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's easy to get a word in edgewise with us. You can just send an email via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. eavesdrop. Gail Simmons is now a judge on Top Chef and host of Top Chef Just Desserts, but her first job was as personal assistant to the infamous food critic Jeffrey Steingarten. Here she is with a dinner party worthy story from that experience. So I was working as a line cook at a restaurant called Vong in New York, and I was given the book The Man Who Ate Everything by Jeffrey Steingarten. I didn't know who Jeffrey Steingarten was until this point. I had never read Vogue magazine. So I read this book, and when I read it, I remember thinking, this is it. This is my job. This is what I've always waited for and haven't known how to articulate. I want this job. Um, How do I get it? Who is this madman, and how do I work for him? So I went to my culinary school and to the guy there who is the culinary career services director. And I said, have you ever heard of this guy? And my career services director, Steve, looked at me and laughed and said, wow, that's amazing. I saw Jeffrey last week and I happen to know he's looking for a new assistant. And he set up an interview with me and Jeffrey for the following week. And I called Jeffrey right before the interview to confirm the details. And Jeffrey sort of cryptically said, since you're coming over, don't they have some sort of fried duck roll at Vong, this restaurant you cook at? And I took that as a takeout order. I proceeded to have a three-hour interview with Jeffrey that was the most stressful interview of my life. Jeffrey read my resume and grilled me on every aspect of it. Jeffrey made me translate from French and Spanish, off-the-cuff books that he would just rip off the shelves. He was drinking a glass of wine, asked me to taste it blind and give him my tasting notes. He was making these ribs, and he asked me to taste them and describe what was right or wrong about them. He talked to me about restaurants and where I like to eat in the city, and I made the mistake of mentioning a restaurant I like to eat at, and his response was, wow, you obviously don't read Vogue magazine. If you did, you would know that I hate that restaurant. After about three hours, he let me loose, and I left his apartment and walked home. And I remember thinking to myself, I know I didn't get the job because it was miserable. I failed completely at every test he gave me. But at least I got three hours with this incredible food writer. And sure enough, I got a call from him just a few days later offering me the job. And it was exactly as I imagined it to be. I spent half my time recipe testing, doing research, running around the city for all of his amazing culinary adventures. Um, We did an article about sea urchin, and he would go diving for sea urchin himself, and then we would cook these incredible sea urchin recipes, which is kind of amazing if you know what Jeffrey looks like to think of him in a wetsuit diving for sea urchin. Don't think about it. Just stop. Stop thinking about it. He wasn't an easy man to work for. You know, in a way, he believed in negative reinforcement. Instead of telling you all the things you do right so that you want to do them again, he would make sure to just tell you the things that you did wrong. For example, you could never use the term frankly. He claims that the term is to be frank. He also hated when you would respond to him if he would ask you to do something by saying no problem. 
of course it was no problem. That's your job, and I'm asking you to do something. To this day, there are things that I'm scared to ever do and say because Jeffrey told me not to. One of the pieces of working for Jeffrey that I didn't anticipate that was this bonus was that I was you know, non-officially inducted into the ranks of his fellow assistants. He picks a very specific type of young woman to work for him. That's not in a sexist way at all. These women are all really strong, wonderful people who went on to also become very important, integral to my life and my career. Um, But emotionally, they provided such an amazing support because otherwise you're just kind of working alone all day with Jeffrey. And we call ourselves Jeffrey's Angels. Writer and TV host Gail Simmons sharing a story from her memoir, Talking With My Mouthful, My Life as a Professional Eater. And you're listening to a special all-food episode of The Dinner Party from American Public Media, to be frank. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where someone who knows something we don't tells us about it, so if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. This week, our teacher is award-winning writer for The New Yorker, Adam Gopnik. He's got a new book out called The Table Comes First. In it, he looks at how food has come to be such a central part of our modern society. So Adam, teach us a few of the things you learned while writing this book. Um, I learned so much. One of the things that was most striking to me was the history of the restaurant, that we're inclined to think of the restaurant as a permanent institution. It's like, you know, you have sex in a bed and you eat in a restaurant. (laughs) And you would never stop to think, well, somebody must have invented this practice of having sex in beds. Maybe it was in Berlin in 1842. I don't think it was Berlin. I think Berlin was... The cold place. Maybe it was in Italy, in (laughs) Naples in 1842. But it couldn't... You wouldn't think, well, it was someplace that that began. But the restaurant really did begin at a particular nameable place in time. It began in the 1780s in Paris... Uh And the inventor was a guy with the wonderful name of Chantoiseau, Birdsong, uh, who had the idea that people would want health food. What Chantoiseau was selling was uh, bouillon, you know, a kind of soup, a kind of healthy made soup, which he called a restaurant, meaning a restorative. Oh, so that's where the word comes from. That's where the word comes from. Gotcha. And by uh, drinking this thing, you would have something that was clean and healthy. And very important point, you could make your own choice about what kind you wanted to eat. Uh, and so the whole basic arrangement of the restaurant, that you come into a uh, elegant-looking place mm-hmm. where you have a table of your own, where you make your choice from a menu, and then, and this is perhaps the most crucial point of all, this may really explain why the restaurant took off yes. in 1780, it was a place where men and women could both go. You're like who aren't related or... Right, found, exactly. Okay. Who aren't married already, aren't brothers and sisters, where you can mingle and you can do it legitimately. It's oh. exactly what goes on nowadays in what we call... Health clubs. What's a health club, right? A health club is a place where men and women in a state of undress can <laughs> show off their bodies to each other and wow. not be reproached for it. Why, why do you go there in your leotard? Just going to work out. I go to restaurants, not health clubs, so I don't even know what goes on there. Well, but thanks well, for the insight. But you're a man of, in that way, you're a classical man because that's why people went to restaurants. Okay. Well, along with the origin of restaurants, your book uh, discusses the idea of taste itself specifically the role that society plays in dictating our taste. You write, we are what we eat, probably closer to the truth to say we eat what we are. 
Right. Now, this is a subtle point, and I struggle to, to make it clear, and I, I want to try and make it clear. All it's right. certainly the case that tastes change all the time. And one of the things that we see happen over and over again, that's what I was trying to say with that little epigram, is that we have these mouth tastes, things that we think are delicious to eat, and they very quickly become moral tastes. They become stands we're taking. They become examples of what we believe. In our own time, whole wheat bread and local rutabagas and uh, free-range chicken and all those things. Yeah. And we think they taste great, but when we eat those things, we're also making a moral statement. This is the kind of people we are. We're in secession from mass agriculture, from the industrial slaughterhouse and so on. So that kind of mouth taste, which is real, is also a moral taste. And that always happens in every period. And if you look back on it historically, you can see that inevitably it changes all the time. So, for example, just a few decades ago, uh, a person who was kind of a foodie would be the person who knew how to get a tomato in January, whereas now eating local and seasonal stuff is considered a mark of sophistication. When I first moved to New York 30 years ago, there was this wonderful restaurant writer named Seymour Britschke who wrote a guide to New York restaurants. I remember he was reviewing one of the great classy French places, and he says they fly their Dover sole in from France uh, every day. <laughs> now, Nowadays, we would think they're flying their sole. We have wonderful fish here. That can't possibly be a good way. Yeah. Horrifying, right? <laughs> horrifying about carbon miles, horrifying about how long the fish has been out of water. Yeah. We would regard that as an instance of the most meretricious, vulgar, false taste. <laughs> yeah. It was only 30 years ago when that was a sign you were really eating well. So those things change all the time. But here's the subtle part. All right. Uh, th- that doesn't mean that all of our tastes are nothing but fads and fashions. You know, you'll often read sort of um, satirical or snarky uh, books and articles about food that says, you see, tastes change all the time, so what these people like is just the cheap fad of their time. And I don't think it works that way. Aha, so now we're getting to one of the discoveries that lies at the heart of your book, which is the secret to life. The secret of life, as I, as I would put yeah. it, to distinguish it from the secret of life, which is a serious thing. Secret of life. Which, by the way, would have made a great title for your book. I'm not sure why you buried the lead. I think you could have moved a lot more units if you... Might have moved a few units. Called it that. Food, you know, <laughs> that actually would have been a, probably a better subtitle, Food and the Secret of Life. Let's hear it. Let's hear the secret of life. Now you've depressed me so much because you've <laughs> made all. me realize that, no, well, maybe the paperback <laughs> will we'll take that title. <laughs> the secret of life, I think. Uh, okay. The secret of life is that we have to have a sufficient detachment from our tastes and values to see their absurdity and sufficient attachment to them to feel their necessity. We have to be able to look. I'm going to go home tonight, and I'm going to make uh, wild salmon, if I can find it, and organic broccoli and organic uh, brown rice mm. for my family. Yeah, uh, Those are very much the tastes of my time and my class and my kind. Uh, they won't be the same 25 years from now. They weren't the same 25 years ago. But I love everything that that wild salmon and organic broccoli and brown rice represents. I love the way that their tastes do have something, if you like, natural about them. Mm-hmm. I love the effort I have to make to assemble that meal. I love giving it to my kids. All of those feelings are completely real, even though, even though they're necessarily shaped by this moment in history rather than some other. And now if I'm at a dinner party enjoying that meal, I'll be able to stand up for my food choices. Adam Gopnik, thanks for sharing the meaning of life. I really thank you, and I really enjoyed doing this. (laughs) 
New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik sharing insights he learned while writing the book The Table Comes First, France, Family, and the Meaning of Food. And that is quite the knowledgeable man. He is, but I have to say that last point has to be off, right? Really? Yeah, because this Thursday, everyone in America sat down and ate the same thing they've been eating for decades. True. And 25 years from now, we'll be doing the same thing. Probably. Taste doesn't progress. Maybe it just takes a while for traditions to change. This is true. Unfortunately for turkeys. Yeah. And that would explain why we still eat cranberries even though they hurt. That's a good point. Yeah. Glad we figured that out. Folks, coming up, more food. Chef and James Beard award-winning author Gabrielle Hamilton talks about her book Blood, Bones, and Butter. Mm. We get a dinner party soundtrack from the band The War on Drugs. And instead of eating turkey, we go there. That and more when this all-food episode of The Dinner Party continues. Welcome back to an all-food episode of The Dinner Party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and here is Russell Hartman, Senior Collections Manager at the California Academy of Sciences, talking about his favorite item in the museum's collection of eating utensils. Well, this is a dinner knife. Uh, It's English from the late 1700s, standard steel blade knife. But as you can see, the tip of the knife blade curves upward, almost like a pistol handle. Or like a wooden shoe in Holland. (laughs) Uh, Yes, you could see that in there too. Uh, The reason for this is because at one point uh, there were too many knifings going on at the dinner table in the courts. (laughs) So one of the English kings forbade any pointed knives being at the dinner table. Are you serious? He rounded the knife so people wouldn't stab each other at dinner? Exactly. Wow, so people in the 17th century were just super passionate about food, I guess. (laughs) Apparently. These field greens are slightly wilted. (laughs) I stab you. This is not free-range turducken. You can't pair this wine with fish. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we taped that interview a while ago, but uh, we played it for you today because this is a special all-food episode of The Dinner Party. Later, the band The War on Drugs Mm. suggests some tunes to play while you dine, and in a few minutes, I sample some delights from Turkey. But first, it's time to welcome our guest of honor. Gabrielle Hamilton is the owner of and chef at Prune Restaurant in Manhattan. Delicious. She's also the author of the memoir Blood, Bones, and Butter, all of which are sold at her restaurant. Uh, That book won the James Beard Book Award for Literature. It's about her idyllic childhood. She was raised in a large, fairly well-off family. But then, almost out of nowhere, her parents split, and she was pretty much abandoned. When we spoke last year, I asked her how that experience led her to food. That's what happened. I was growing up one way, and then someone scratched the, you know, needle right off the record, and then I started living another way. And that's how a whole life can happen. I had to have a job right away. I had to have money. I stumbled into town naively. I went to the very first restaurant I found because I knew how to wash dishes at home. And there I am, 30 years later, <laughs> still washing dishes. <laughs> Oops. Well, at least you're washing dishes in your own restaurant, um, a really well-regarded restaurant. And now you have this book out, which kind of has a buzz about it. You know, it's interesting. In your book, you seem to frown upon chef celebrity culture, but you yourself have made appearances on TV. Now you have this buzzy book coming out. Is that hard for you? It is not difficult at all. I am not a celebrity. No one stops me on the subway. So it's not hard at all. And I have never and will never forget that I'm the help. You know what I mean? It's not, um, I'm not caught up in this. This is a very beautiful moment. It's um, sort of sweet, 
cool water in my hands and it's going right through my fingertips. <laughs> I get it. I cook, it's manual labor. But that's not, you know, that's disingenuous in a way because of course when I was 35 or something, I thought, well, I'm going to pull the record needle off too and stop all this cooking and see if I have anything else to offer. And I went away to graduate school. I just ditched it and said, this is it. It's now or never. Answer the question, do you have anything else to offer besides microgreens with balsamic vinegar? <laughs> and I went to grad school and I came back and I opened a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but then you wrote a book about, you wrote about balsamic <laughs> vinaigrette on microgreens. So and actually you got everything. Well, there. right. That is one of the most unexpected pleasures. I always thought that you come to the fork in the road and you must go left or right, and you will never see right again. And I did it. I, I consciously and out loud said when I opened the gate of the restaurant, okay, I am not a writer. It's over. Mm. And clonk on my head six yeah. weeks later, <laughs> I'm getting my first paid writing gig. And uh, <laughs> so it's very nice that the forks came around um, up ahead and I got to do both. Well, all right. We have two standard questions on our show. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked? Oh, if I'm going to write another book. I, I mean, because I haven't even gotten to have fun with this one yet. That's right. So I just want five minutes to enjoy this one. <laughs> all right. Well, I would like to enjoy that moment, but I need to go to our second question, which is, tell us something we don't know, something um, you haven't shared with anyone, or just something in the world at large that people don't know. Since I've told you everything about myself... <laughs> In my book, there's nothing left to know. Um, I was wondering if you knew that sweetbreads um, are the thymus glands of a calf, and that's a gland that disappears in a mature animal. So there's no such thing as beef sweetbreads, only veal. So I've been lamb. misled all these years when, I, when I've gotten... <laughs> I know. It's really kept you up at night wondering about the thymus gland. <laughs> I've never understood why they're even called sweetbreads. I was confused for years when people told me they had sweetbreads for lunch. Right, I you thought they was... meant date nut loaf or something. Exactly. You know <laughs> Walnut the... banana bread. <laughs> Gabrielle Hamilton, her memoir is called Blood, Bones, and Butter. It won this year's James Beard Book Award for Literature. Enrico, just to follow up, no one's really sure where the term sweet bread came from. Interesting. But sweet may have just been used to distinguish it from muscle meat, which is more savory tasting. Oh, okay. And the bread part may come from the old English word brode, which means flesh or meat. And also, sweet bread sounds way nicer than baby cow gland. <laughs> it does sound, yeah, I a don't want to order that <laughs> knowingly. So this being an all-food show and this being Thanksgiving week, we decided we just had to send Rico to do a story in the country of Turkey. It made perfect sense. Yeah, because we totally have the budget to fly me to Europe for a pun. Puns are important to this show. Actually, that's not the case. I went last year for a wedding and I taped this little piece while I was there and it's about Turkish delight. Ah, Which, yes. an emotion you experienced while you were there. True, but it is also, of course, a kind of Turkish candy. Uh, mm. A lot of people may remember the character of Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is so into Turkish delight that a witch uses it to tempt him to do terrible things. So it must be good. Well, I wanted to find out. So I followed blogger and food guide Megan Clark of Istanbul Eats to a beautiful little candy shop. I asked her why she'd chosen to show me this particular one. These guys, Altan Şekerleme, they've been here since 1865. Three generations still working in the shop, but four generations total. 
and they do it from scratch, they do it on site, and they do it better than everybody else. <laughs> That's a good reason. Is this a typical Turkish Delight type shop? It's not something that you find in every residential neighborhood anymore. It would have been something that would be pretty common to find. What happened to these kind of shops? What, what replaced them? Even here you can see you know, a bunch of the shelves and window displays are full of uh, factory-made candies, and those are all over the place, and they really have taken over from the homemade candy, so it's harder to find places that make their own candy. The McDonaldization of Turkish delight. <laughs> all right, the, uh, the, it sounds like the afternoon prayers have begun, so that's as good an excuse as any to go inside and continue this interview with the people involved. Time for some sugar. All right, we were standing in the shop there, jars and jars of really bright, happy-looking candies. Those are sort of the cut sugar-spun candies. Cabinets almost to the ceiling with more candies. We have giant pretzels made of twisted peppermint stick that are like the size of a baby's arm in thickness. This is like Willy Wonka's favorite place on earth. And then in the main cabinet is, of course, the locum. Bins of them, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, twelve different flavors. There's dates inside of some of them and uh, some that look more like marshmallows with almonds in them. It's kind of wonderful in here. All right, can you uh, give me your name and what you do? Hakan Altan from Turkey, Istanbul. <laughs> I noticed. And what do you what do you do? It's his family's business. They make candy. He learned from his father. His father learned from his grandfather, and his grandfather learned from his great-grandfather. That's a long ways to pass down one recipe. Are you sure you got it right? <laughs> he said, absolutely, because it's in the family and it's from one person to the other directly. Tell me, what is Turkish delight? We hear about it a lot, but a lot of people in America don't know exactly what it is. Uh, the Ottoman royal family, and especially the sultans, after having a meal, they developed Turkish delight as a way to settle their stomach. So it was actually kind of a digestive kind of thing. Nice. Okay, like instead of brandy, candy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, um, what is in it? Is it mostly sugar? I mean, it's very sweet, obviously. So it's basically cornstarch. Uh, sugar and citric acid. So in Turkish, it's lemon salt, but it's actually citric acid and water. What is? There are many flavors of Turkish delight here. Which is your favorite to make and to eat? The pistachio, because the way that the pistachio flavors the actual locum stuff itself is particular to pistachios and really delicate and amazing. But he also really likes the chocolate and hazelnut mixed ones because to make it requires a kind of delicacy or a carefulness and also because the taste with the cocoa, which here is an actual kind of bitter baking chocolate, with the hazelnut is a nice balance. It's not overly sweet. It's actually a slightly more complicated dessert. Now, plain locum, I'm told, is, is normally served with tea or something like that? Traditionally, and we're talking, you know, Ottoman period traditional, you'd get the plain or rose-flavored gulu locum, paired with coffee, not with tea, in part because coffee is something where you would have one cup socially with friends, whereas tea, like, you would drink constantly throughout the day. And so if you're having tea and a piece of locum 30 times a day, that's a little bit too awesome for words. You're a little too wired. <laughs> There'd be way too much done in this country. The GDP would go off the charts. Now, the pistachio is your favorite. 
That makes sense because I'm also told that pistachios are the most special and kind of most expensive one, right? Can I can I try some of that? Yeah. He says, of course, and he's grinning. <laughs> and so am I because I think I'm going to get a free piece of locum. So we have some. I'm going to try some of this uh, double pistachio, the most expensive treat in the house. It is good. That is good. I like especially the glueiness of the candy. Then you hit something hard and crunchy and then keep getting through gluey. And it's still, by the way, it's still the most expensive nut in Turkey, even though Turkey is sort of known to be a place for pistachios to be grown. It's expensive. It's not more expensive than, you know, Brazil nuts or things that are by and large imported. But as things go, that the kinds of nuts that get used in most Turkish cuisine, the pistachio is king. Oh, I've, so one more question. Typically in America, you think of a candy store as a place for kids. Is that the case here? Are you selling mostly to children or mostly to adults? No, actually, this isn't the kind of candy store where he gets a lot of children coming in, mostly because children these days are more interested in kind of cheap chocolate candy bars and different kinds of flavors, like watermelon and weird things like that. Uh, so a lot of what he gets are people coming in looking for a kind of nostalgic experience of flavors and the textures and everything that they remember from their youth. It's for grown-up children. Yes, these are for grown-up children, yes. And Brendan, I can attest to the Turkish love of tea. They served it to me constantly. That sounds tasty. It, it was, uh, but I'm also addicted to coffee. So basically mm-hmm. in Istanbul, it was just back and forth, tea and coffee, tea and coffee for me, like all day. Wow, yeah. But the good news <laughs> is I ended up saving money on the return flight because I just ran back to America. All right, we've met our guest of honor. Served you some dessert. Just one thing remains for a perfect dinner party. Some music to play while you eat. For that, we turn to Adam Grandusiel. He is the man behind the band The War on Drugs. We talked to him last year when he was on tour for the band's album Slave Ambient. Here's a clip. The War on Drugs from their song Best Night. Here's Adam to suggest some tunes from other musicians. Hey, this is uh, Adam Grandusiel from uh, The War on Drugs. Our new album is called Slave Ambient on Secretly Canadian. Well, I guess the first one would be uh, a song called A Pagan Place by The Water Boys. from uh, the Water Boys' second record, early 80s, 83, 84. When we played the UK recently, people were always comparing us to the Water Boys, and I'd heard a little bit of them years ago. It never really caught on, so over the course of the last couple months, I've been buying every Water Boys record when I see it. They invented the term, the big sound, 
and that was what they categorized as this record and the one after it. Just the production was really, really big, and I think a lot of bands around that time took a lot of cues from um, the way that the, those two Waterboys records sounded. gorgeous song so maybe that would be something definitely not for the end of the meal because that's when you're that, that's when you'd put on uh, this other song I'm going to say a band called uh, Blues Control and they have a couple records out the one song that I always love by them is called Migration and it's from Blues Control Blues Control and they're an uh, instrumental band. I don't know if they'd be, like, be called instrumental or, or new age would probably be what they would like to be called. I've taken a lot of cues from a lot of their stuff over the years. There's two people in the band, Leah, who plays piano, and then Russ plays like guitar and does all the cassette sampling, running everything through amps, but it's really pretty and really like lush and really thick. It's got like just a lot of, a lot of heart to it. At the end of the meal, this is what this is what comes on, and everyone kind of lets the turkey sit in and just lean back on the couch, and you know, maybe have a cigarette or maybe uh, make some tea or some coffee. Let me see. Well, there's a song from Roxy Music called "A Two HB," which um, Brian Ferry wrote for Humphrey Bogart. Brian Ferry and Humphrey Bogart do have some uh, personality similarities. Or I think I think Brian Ferry looked up to Humphrey Bogart a lot for I think it's probably something to do with his class, you know, like his his just like general mystique. He's looking at you, kid. Celebrate He's looking at you, kid. Away, this is probably the one actually at the end of the night when everyone's putting their coats on, you know, when you're helping your friends put their coats on right after, uh, you know, maybe 45 minutes after Blues Control. Everyone's finished, you know, finished their coffees and, and you know, wiped the cake off their face. A dinner party soundtrack from Adam Grandusio of the band The War on Drugs. You can see them live on New Year's Eve in their hometown of Philadelphia. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Yes. Next week, legendary skater Tony Hawk will be in our studio. Amazing. Till then, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Tamika Adams and James Kim are our interns. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, and our friends at the public radio show, Marketplace. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.